Welcome to the Defend the North podcast. I'm your co-host, Dana Eisfeld. I'm joined today for a second time on the podcast by my friend, my neighbor, and our Wisconsin sports fanboy, Tyler Saxe. Tyler, welcome. Thanks much, Dana. Pleasure to be back. Tyler, uh, playing off of our opening in the first pod, so we talked a little bit about all that red and white I see emanating from your presence from your yard. You recently posted six photos of you and your wife celebrating her birthday on social media. I won't say the age. Um, in those pictures, it was the two of you in all of them. In five of them, you were wearing red and white. In the six, what color were you wearing? Ooh, that's a tough question. I am going to say black. No, I today at the park where I saw you, you were at, you actually surprised me with your black shirt. I'm like, okay, that's not Wisconsin. Of course, you walk up and I see the little W on your chest, and I'm like, okay, that is Wisconsin. Incorrect, sir. Incorrect. You were wearing white and red as opposed to red and white. So there we go. I I'd say you're leaning into how I described you in the first podcast. I kind of get the sense. This just might be who you are long before you met me. I would say that's accurate. Yeah. And, and speaking to that, speaking of, of the red and white and the white and red and occasionally the black Tyler, you went down there. You went into a sea of red and white last weekend at Camp Randall for the first time since um, the fall of 2019. You know, you got to catch that Penn State Wisconsin game. I, how was that being in person? Uh, it was a great kind of at least return to semi-normalcy, I would say. Um, fantastic to be back. Um, we definitely missed it last fall. Um, so we are season ticket holders and try to make it down, uh, make the drive from the Twin Cities for almost all the home games. And so not being able to do that last year was tough. Um, so it was fantastic to be back. Um, and again, sort of a you know, somewhat sense of normalcy of being back there, um, singing varsity, hearing first and 10 Wisconsin on the PA system, urging our group in the upper deck to stand up and make some noise on a third down. Um, it was it was great to be back. Um, a lot of fun. It was a great atmosphere. It was a little bit more packed than I thought it would be, honestly. I thought there might be some pockets of no-shows and things like that, but um, it was pretty crowded. All in all, a great experience besides the uh, issues we had on offense at times. Uh, issues that you had on offense at times. At times, I'm guessing you mean the full 60 minutes. Um, mostly every time we got inside the red zone. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. From the the the, re I didn't get a chance to catch the game, but from the recap that you sent me, you know, what was it, forty two to eighteen in terms of ball possession, and how many yards did you guys end up with? The yardage ended up being pretty close. I think we were both in like the mid three hundreds. I want to say. I'm not sure how that ended up at the end. I don't know if I checked it um, late in the fourth quarter, um, but it was pretty close in yardage because Penn State had a couple of really big plays. Um, to catch up there. But yeah, Wisconsin had the ball for 42 minutes. Um, as the game went on, it was more like each minute was more agonizing than the last with the ball. Um, she just had a, a sense. It was very similar to a 2015 game in Chris's first season against Iowa, um, where you know, repeatedly we were down three, had the ball over and over and had a chance and um, just kept tripping over our own feet and not getting it done. Um, it was kind of a deja vu with this game. All right, so Tyler went down and spent some time in Madison this past weekend. There's been a lot of weekends in Madison in the last, we'll say, 25, 30 years where the Badgers have gotten the better of the Gophers. So tonight we wanted 
to start off our podcast by giving you an opportunity to talk about one of the matchups that you feel best about um, in terms of either getting or keeping the axe, and in most cases, probably keeping. And then on the flip side, I'm going to give you one of the few matchups that I um, found really interesting when the Gophers actually got the axe. So, so what what do you got for us? All right. Well, I was tempted to go with 1999, the overtime game in the Metrodome, because I actually made the trip up here as a UW student and watched that game. Um, that was a pretty key one for the Badgers to pull out um, and end up getting to the Rose Bowl. But I have to actually go with 2019. Um, finally a game where it was a lot on the line for both the Badgers and the Gophers. Um, it was a de facto Big Ten West division championship game. Um, the best Gophers season in a long time. Uh, how good was it going to be kind of came down to that game. Um, and then it was actually it was a chance to win the Axe back after 2018, after losing it in Madison. Um, so that was a, a pretty big one with the build-up college game day being here um, in the Twin Cities um, and all the build-up around it and the excitement that was actually here um, for Gopher fans uh, for a change. A huge game. And then what makes a good football game great football game more than snow? Um, so we got that too. And then the Badgers managed to run away with that one in the second half. So um, that one was quite fulfilling given everything that was on the line um, and just a kind of a cool atmosphere overall. Yeah, I'm going to talk a little bit about that season later on when we get to the the, the rise of PJ Fleck in that 11 and 2 season for the Gophers back in 2019. And you're right, like if the Gophers had managed to find a way to pull that game out, it would have really made that 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 season magical. But but you know, as always, as always or almost always, you know, Wisconsin found a way and I think it was pretty clear in that second half who the better team was. Yeah, agreed. It was especially given that the Gophers did get off to a good start in that one. A couple early stops and turnover by the Badgers, and they hit the big pass play to Johnson, I believe, to, to go up 7 nothing, and um, held the lead till late in the first half. So it was pretty even for a while, but the second half did um, end up pretty one-sided. A lot of NFL draft picks in that game, too, um, on both sides, which, as you were saying, like a little bit of a surprise that the Gophers have kind of been able to, to bring that that same punch. Um so essentially, like you spoiled the best season that we had had in 50 years is what you're saying. That's fair. Well, we spoiled your best season, and I'm not going to say in 50 years, but in a long time in 1993. So I'm going into the the, uh, the time machine here, Tyler, and ride with me back to October 23rd, 1993. Um, any clue what happened that day? I do. Um Many, many turnovers by the Badgers um, in their undefeated season, um, sort of a storybook season to that point. Um, I believe there were 6-0 at the time, if not 7, that all disappeared on another one of those horrendous nights for a Wisconsin team in the Metrodome. Uh, right. That's it. That's exactly it. That's, you know, and if you're doing this by memory and not by research, I'm impressed. A lot of it's memory. <laughs> yeah. Tyler, you got, you, got that. you got that on a lot of us. I'll say this. The, the two and four Gophers. So we hosted the six and oh, 15th ranked Badgers. And, you know, we're going to get into the rise of um, Wisconsin football under the leadership of Barry Alvarez. But this was really like his first truly great season. You guys did enter Minneapolis that Saturday afternoon, six and oh, Gophers two and four. And there's this really grainy footage of the game on YouTube. And it's actually like a three minute video montage. Um, you know, you get all the play calling with the great, you know, voice of the Gophers, Ray Christensen. 
you know, they're playing in the dome. George Thorogood's Madison Blues is on in the background. And the Gophers squeak out a 28-21 victory. So how do we do it? We had a couple of big runs from our, our, our big back, Chris Darkins. He had seven carries for 83 yards that day. Um, the Gophers quarterback, Scott Eckers, threw for a pair of touchdowns. So we're up 21-0 at halftime against the the Badgers who were undefeated up until that point. And we hold on for a 28-21 win. And you're right. Those turnovers were the key to this game. I mean, the Gophers made some big plays to their credit. Wisconsin had 36 first downs to Minnesota's 18, 605 total yards, including 423 through the air. And you guys finished fifth in the coaches poll after winning the Rose Bowl that year. And no team had beat you except for the Gophers. So all I'm saying is that Although you may have spoiled our best season in 2019, we probably spoiled your best chance at a national championship in the modern era. That's completely fair. And in retrospect, that's kind of become uh, even more clear with time. I think at the time in 1993, and you know, I was only 13 at the time and um, enjoyed the ride after that loss. That was a, that was a brutal night watching him lose that game, but then they came back, beat Michigan, tied Ohio state. Um, and then getting to the Rose bowl at the time, uh, you know, kind of overjoyed and didn't really think about it, but you know, you know, a few years later, you started to look at that, and uh, I don't believe anybody went undefeated that season. So had Wisconsin managed to win that game, they'd have been the only undefeated team having the one tie against Ohio State. Um, they very well could have actually won the national title that year. Yeah, and who was the coach of the Gophers at that, at that time? That was the great Jim Wacker. Yeah, so a little salt on the wound there, huh? Like <laughs> Jim Wacker and the Wisconsin Badgers' best chance at at, at a title um, probably in the last 30 years. Um, but, you know, I think this is a good segue, Tyler, because, you know, we wanted to talk a little bit tonight. Then after the, these, these, the great wins, because, you know, the axe is important. By the way, when I was looking for games to bring up, it's no surprise I had to go back 28 years because I was looking at a website that had kind of it in blocked colors. So if Wisconsin won, it was red with white lettering. If the Gophers won, it was gold with maroon lettering. And there was a lot of red blocks on there. And most of the times when we did beat you, like you guys were in a down season. So um, I, I had to find one where the Gophers actually beat you when you're kind of at your best. But going back to the early 1990s, so Barry Alvarez and the rise of, of UW football. Bring us back there to that moment, Tyler. Talk to us a little bit about where Wisconsin had been and you know those first three or four years and, and how you guys kind of came into the Wisconsin that we know to, today. Sure. Um, yeah, that was um, where they had been was not a good place. Um, and I honestly can't even tell you, like, other than proximity, um, growing up like an hour from Madison, why I even cared at that point as like a 10 year old kid. <laughs> but I was listening to the Badger football games on the radio. There weren't many of them on TV at that point. Um, there was one in 88 or 89 where they played Miami at home in Madison. Um, and that one was televised nationally, which was a real treat. Um, but that game was famous for um, the the student section chanting, we scored first because the Badgers kicked a field goal on the opening drive and then proceeded to lose, I believe, 56 to three, <laughs> but something along those lines, but they did score first. Um, no, it was, it was in a bad way um, overall the program. I mean, it was, it was really brutal. Um, and then things just seemed different um, with the Alvarez hire 
you know, they certainly lost in the beginning and they went one and 10 his first season and then a couple of five and six years, but you could start to tell it was just a little bit different. Uh, I think it was in 91, his second season. Um, I think that's when they started the season out in Seattle um, against the defending national champs in Washington. Um, they lost like 27 to 10, but like they put up a fight and they were sort of in the game the whole way. Um, it never felt like they were actually going to pull off the upset, but the fact they didn't get crushed, it just seemed like there was a different mentality, um, some toughness and physicality to the program that he was bringing, and you could sort of see the light starting to go on um, and see things um, hopefully eventually change, and then they, they did rather relatively quickly starting in 93. Well, tell me a little bit more about that 93 season. Yeah, that was a that was a great ride. Um, you know, that was a team where so it's year four for him. So he's you know his first class of recruits that he had a month to pull together um, when he was hired on New Year's Day um, in '90. Um, started to see some of that talent that they were able to pull together a decent class come together, um, and then just the physicality and the toughness of them. Um, I, I think it was. Um, a lot of growth from the year prior. So in 92, there was a lot of hope that we'd make a bowl game. Um, and they just didn't have enough offense through a lot of the season. They lost some really tight, low-scoring games where the defense played well, but they just didn't have enough oomph on, on the offensive side of the ball to get it done. Um, but they were 5-5 five and five and went down to Northwestern. Um, and a win would have gotten them into a low-tier bowl game, but at that stage, any bowl game would have been fantastic, um, and they, they fumbled trying to center the ball for a field goal kick at the end that would have won it. So it was a brutal end of 92, but I think the players really took that to heart and said 93 needs to be different. Um, and I think going into that season, probably figured that definitely had to be a bowl team. Um, didn't expect to be a Big Ten champ and Rose Bowl um, team, um, but they really came out of the gates um, swinging right away. Physical running game. Um, Bevel was making some good throws and got the passing game going a little bit, so it was balanced, and they, they played some tough defense, forced a lot of turnovers, um, and just kind of got the ball rolling. Um, we've talked about the blip at Minnesota, but then after that, beat Michigan at home and then had Ohio State on the ropes, let them come back and tie it at the end. Um, but then after that, really took care of business. And um, the crazy, crazy memory from that season is remembering that the final game of the regular season was against Michigan State in Tokyo um, because years prior they had agreed um, to go play in the Coca-Cola Bowl or whatever in, in Tokyo. Um, at least as a at the time they signed the agreement, it was viewed as a reward for the players for um, a tough season type of thing because we didn't know if we were going to be in a bowl game. And then all of a sudden you have to go to Tokyo with the Rose Bowl on the line. Um, that was that was a crazy one, the late night watching that. But uh, um, the Rose Bowl was pretty surreal after that. Well, you guys took down UCLA 21-16 in that Rose Bowl. And, and I mean, at that point, Wisconsin's on the map, right? Like. A ten, you guys jump from, you know, that 92 team, as you say, and, you know, Alvarez points this out um, often, like he thinks that 92 team really could have easily been a bowl team, but they lost a couple of those close games down the stretch. But that, you know, that toughness that you're talking about in 91 um, and the Washington game in 92, when they're, you know, they, they're on the verge of making a low tier um, bowl game that translates into the success that they didn't have in 93. And, you know, I think every program that's that's been on the ropes for as long as Wisconsin had been needs that breakout year and I think 1993 is clearly that for Wisconsin you win 10 of your 12 games you only lose one and you get to the Rose Bowl and win it 
I mean, at that point, I mean, you talked about, you know, a year or two earlier, how it felt different. What was, what, you know, what was the mentality in Wisconsin at that point? Like, you know, you'd gone three, what, three decades without anything close to that. And, and like you guys come home with a Rose Bowl victory. Yeah, that was, uh, that was fantastic. Even getting to the Rose Bowl. So when they clinched the Big Ten title um, with the win over Michigan State in Tokyo, um, you know, I remember staying up late into the night um, after that game and it was pretty wired about that. Um, and then people, um, when they came back, you know, a day or two later, made the flight back from Tokyo. Um, they, they arrived in like the middle of the night and people lined the highway all the way from O'Hare in Chicago up to Madison and were waiting in the stadium for them to get back. Um, and now to, to this day, too, I think the stories, even Barry talks about how everybody's got a 93-season Rose Bowl story. Um, I think there's about 400,000 of us who claim to have been at that Rose Bowl. I was not. Um, <laughs> but, <laughs> um, yeah, that was that was kind of a, you know, thrilling to break through in that manner. Um, you know, I think we'd have been happy with an 8-4 and four season or 8-3 and three season and getting to any type of bowl. Um, but to, to break through was excellent. And I, th- I think it spoke to the the plan that Alvarez came with, you know, coming to fruition. I think one of the things I've really started to appreciate or come to appreciate about Barry over the years is I think everybody, Badger fans, Gopher fans, anybody else, um, would come to agreement that Barry's got a pretty big ego. Um, but I've come to appreciate that I think um, – Barry has a very productive ego, and one piece of that is it's not rooted in, well, I'm Barry Alvarez, I'm great, I'm going to go up to this terrible program, and we're just going to start winning. Um, His ego is really built in process, plan, and beliefs, Um, and he showed up. Um, He likes to tell the story um, of when he interviewed um, with Pat Richter for the job in 1990, or in late 89 when he got the job. Um, New Year's Day 90, he left a pamphlet behind, kind of the type of thing you hear these days with the really young NFL coaches, like they've got everything written out and and their plan. Uh, But he did that back then. Um, He left a booklet behind um, for Pat Richter after the interview that laid out all of his beliefs about the game and philosophies about leadership. Um, He had a list of all the coaches he would plan on hiring for each position on the staff if he got the job, uh, who his top choices would be for that, um, outlined what the approach to recruiting would be. Um, So I think it was very much rooted in all of his experiences as a player at Nebraska, as an assistant with Iowa, um, with Hayden Fry, um, and then with Lou Holtz at Notre Dame. Um, And he kind of soaked all that in and, and developed a plan that he thought would work. Um, so I, I think that that's where it became sort of a productive ego for him. And I think that came through in 93 and then beyond that um, it wasn't just wishing that they were going to get better. It was if we follow these steps and we follow this plan, I don't see any reason why we can't win at Wisconsin. Um, and, and then it came to be. You know, well, his, his wife, she often says uh, about that productive ego that you speak of, he likes to be important. But he likes to be important for the right reasons, as you're saying. And it is about process, and it's about culture, and it's about facilities. And I think probably most importantly, it's about surrounding yourself with the with the right with the right guys, right? Whether it's your assistant coaches or it's your players. And you know, you think about that pedigree. And this, I I kept so you know, Tyler, I've spent more time studying um, a Wisconsin sports program this week than I have in my life. <laughs> and really, like it, for me, the whole the whole Wisconsin sports program goes back to the breakthrough of early '90s Badgers football, and that has so much to do with Barry Alvarez. So I, I mean, I read his, his wiki Wikipedia page, I, I I studied his Sports Reference page, I listened to about seven or eight interviews with him, 
you know, as a coach, as an AD, as his experience, now he's retired. And, you know, I think your, your point that you made earlier, you, you said, you know, Nebraska. So he played linebacker under Bob Devaney from 1966 to 1968. Of course, the, those Cornhuskers would go on to win two titles in 70 and 71. That 71 team, probably one of the top five or 10 best teams of all time. By the way, you forgot the Mason City Mohawks class A, class 4A title in 1978. But, you know, Bob Devaney, Hayden Fry, Lou Holtz. And so it's like the pedigree. So, yeah, maybe there's a healthy ego there. But this guy came from programs that, you know, and, and, and leadership that knew how to win. And, you know, he chose Wisconsin. So, and you said, like, why can't we win here? I think one of the fundamental questions that I've always had is, like, this is a program that had never done anything. And he could have gone, I think, at that point, he was the defensive coordinator of that 1988 Notre Dame um, national championship team that went 12 and 0. I think they finished with the third fewest points per game allowed that year. Um, and so, I mean, he's got a rising stock and he chooses of all places, the Wisconsin Badgers with their block W on their helmets and their losing pedigree. So why do you think a man of, you know, of his rising star would go to a, to a backwater like Madison? Um, you know, I think part of it was that belief we talked about that he could turn pretty much anywhere into a winner if he followed the plan. Um, he did also, he talked a lot about, you know, thinking of Wisconsin as a sleeping giant in terms of just knowing the area, knowing the Midwest from all of his days with Nebraska, Iowa, um, Notre Dame. He knew the Midwest from a recruiting standpoint um, and what it would take to be successful there. Um, I think there's that. Um, He's also, I heard on his podcast recently that they released where he's kind of unfiltered talking about everything now that he's no longer employed by the university. Um, He did mention that they had been on a trip to Madison when he was on the Iowa staff, I believe. Um, And his wife had mentioned she kind of toured Madison with their daughter. um, And she said something to him about, if you ever get a chance to take this job, we better consider it. That's interesting because I, I, I read it. I listened to an interview with him too that, you know, um, dovetailing off that point, Tyler, like he talked about like when he got his opportunity and he and his wife has spoke at length about this, he wanted to be somewhere. He didn't want to be a vagabond coach. He wanted to be somewhere where they could put their roots down, where they could build a family, go to good schools um, and be a part of the community. And, you know, Madison Say what you want about it. My sister and brother-in-law live there for the record. So it isn't as much of a backwater as I might have made it out to be. But like it, Wisconsin football, Wisconsin sports, the university in general is such a huge part of that community. And I think he's such a huge part of that element, right? And it, it, it's pretty incredible what he was able to accomplish there. So after the 93 season, he coaches for 12 more years, 15 in total. Talk to us a little bit about, you know, 94 and beyond up, up until he um, hands over the car keys to, to Brett Bielema. Yeah, it was interesting because 93 was definitely the breakthrough, like you said, kind of put them on the map. And then the next couple of years were a bit of a struggle. So, you know, getting up the mountain is one thing and then staying up there um, is another one. Um, You know, 94 was okay. Um, Struggled a bit more than I think people thought they would have given some of the returning talent. Uh, But at the same time, um, you know, all new 
um, scenario, having the target on your back as the defending Big Ten champ. And you know, they still made a bowl game, and they, they won at Michigan um, late that season. They had to win like three of their last four just to get to a bowl game after some midseason struggles, um, but they did. And then 95 was a pretty big disappointment. Um, 96, Ron Dane arrives, and you start to see things kind of build around him, and it gets a little bit better. And then um, in 98, 99, you really hit the, the golden era of back-to-back Big Ten titles. Um, still the only Big Ten team ever to win consecutive Rose Bowls um, from those two seasons. So um, really kind of hit their stride there for sure. 2000 was a bit of a disappointing season. That's probably, I think, Barry would have said, maybe his best team on paper um, going in. Um, but they just had some unexpected struggles, and the offensive line wasn't as good as they hoped. Um, and then kind of dipped for a few years, and then his last couple of years in charge, um, they kind of started to elevate again like we saw um, Bielema pick up on with, but um, had some better seasons in um, 04 and 05. Um, disappointing endings to them. 04 was one where they were 9-0, and um, went and got thumped at Michigan State by a not-very-good Spartan team, and then still actually had a chance to play for a trip to the Rose Bowl the next week at Iowa. I actually went to that game and was in the front row of one of the end zones with my feet on the ground, um, and they, they didn't pull that one out either. So it was kind of uncharacteristic of an Alvarez team to have a chance at the end of the season to finish it off and get to the Rose Bowl, and they didn't in that one. Um, but pretty solid season. They followed that up with a pretty solid season after that too, for his uh, final year. So you're talking about 1990 to 2005 now. So 15 years, right. As, as, as the head coach of Wisconsin Badgers football. And, you know, you talked about like, it was pretty uncharacteristic of his team. Was it an Oh four that you were speaking to where they had a chance to close it out at Iowa and get a Rose bowl bid? Yeah. Yep. Yeah, and uh, they even had a couple interceptions in the first half of that game from Jim Leonard that set them up in, like, plus territory, and they didn't get any points out of it, and then they just uh, they got worn out from there. Yeah, and, and you're right, though, because the I think the key word there is uncharacteristic because, you know, Alvarez in his 15 years goes to 13 bowl games, and he finishes 12th all-time in terms of um, – Bowl win loss percentage at nine and four. You, you talked about those um, three Rose Bowl victories, three conference championships, 118, 75, and four overall record, which is good. I think it was 606 winning percentage. Probably would have been a lot better if he hadn't built a program, you know, from the bottom up those first few years, one and 10, two, five, and sixes. But, you know, I think it's those 15 years, Tyler. Of and you know there was there were some ups and downs in there. Granted, but the guy made it to thirteen bowl games. A lot of them high tier, you know, Capital One bowl games, right? Like the Rose Bowl and some lower tier ones too. But he went three and one against Jim Tressel, and he was the only coach to beat him two years in a row in 03 and 04. conference championships, Rose Bowls. You know, fifteen years of success, and and you've got something now, right? So as you think back to like how he turned around that program. And we've, we've spoken a little bit to this, but what are the big takeaways for you in terms of what Alvarez did for Wisconsin and how he did it? Yeah, I mean, going back to the plan like we talked about, but then I think also, um, you know, understanding exactly how it was how it could work at Wisconsin for the long term. Um, you know, honestly, I think, you know, there was some blip between 93 the breakthrough and then getting the 98 99 back-to-back Rose Bowl championships you know the years in between there were a little bit bumpy um, and I think part of that was um, you know maybe getting a little bit 
over their heads on some of the recruiting stuff. And I think he's even alluded to that in a few interviews, but um, you know, great. We got to the Rose bowl, won the Rose bowl in 93. And like you said, we're on the map. Um, I think that might've influenced their recruiting a little bit. And they started to go after some of the four and five star players that are going to go to a helmet school, which Wisconsin still was not and still is not. Um, and I think they had a couple classes that had quite a few misses in them there. Um, cause they went chasing some talent that maybe they weren't going to get. Um, but like, Hey, we just won the Rose bowl. Let's go after these guys. Um, and those classes didn't come through immediately after that Rose bowl. Um, I think it took him a few years to kind of get back to like, you know, look at this first class we pulled together in a month. It was, um, you know, your linemen from in-state who are gritty, tough, physical players, um, and then go find, you know, spot pick um, the kids that are going to fill in the, the skill positions and things like that and, and recruit to the system rather than just recruiting stars, I think. Um, that was a big part of it, you know, over time. Um Recruiting to a program um, to get the fit and the style of play, um, which is different than a lot of places. Um, so that was really key for that, I think, um, in the long term, being successful that way. It was sort of like, all right, this is right, let's get back to what worked, um, and let's really double down on that and keep going with it as we go forward. Um, and then the walk-on program, I think I'd, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention that. Um, it's kind of something he... He took, like we talked about from Nebraska and his experience as a player there, Nebraska for a long time in the 70s and 80s was known for their walk-on program. Um, but now the last 20 years, um, it's Wisconsin that's cranked out um, not only you know fantastic players, all Big Ten players, some All-Americans, and even NFL players that were that were walk-ons at Wisconsin um, that got the opportunity to, to work their way on and, and gain a scholarship maybe their last year or two. Um, but you know, there's a whole wall of those in the Camp Randall facility, um, recognizing all of those walk-ons who have, who have made something of themselves in the program and helped the program win. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, he talked about like each year after they had given out all the, the, the scholarships to the scholarship guys, they would bring in, you know, another 20 or 25 kids and, um, and, and continue to work them out. And, you know, he would say in any given year, if two or three of them hit, you know, that's two or three more guys that you can throw out there in the field. And, you know, walk-ons carry a chip on their shoulder and because of that like you know they're going to work hard and if they get the opportunities in the right system it it, it, it I, don't, I don't want to say it's not a surprise because there's so many programs where this doesn't happen this was unique you know if like you said there's a whole wall of them and i think that speaks to the kind of um you know he came up from the ranks i mean this guy coached high school i mean granted he played you know he, he's he's a pennsylvania kid and he plays his college ball at one of the major programs um in the Big 12 at the time in, in Nebraska, were they called the Big 12 back in the late 60s? Is that what, what that conference, with the Big 8, before Nebraska moved conferences, of course, to the Big 10? But um, yeah, I think, you know, the culture, the facilities, the walk-ons, the coaches, the uh, he kind of put it all together. And it, we're going to get to the Minnesota coaches a little bit later on. Um, so, but before we get to Minnesota, we're going to finish off. Um, we're going to talk a little bit about what's happened since then. So he hires um, Brett Bielema in 2004, take over as D coordinator. Um, in 05, he announces that he's going to step aside the following year. And in 06, he becomes the athletic director. And it, because of that, is able to pick his successor, which ultimately um, becomes Brett Bielema. So um, Tyler, talk to us a little bit about that transition. Yeah, that was an interesting one at the time um, for him to announce his, up, his pending retirement after another season um, and then kind of grooming Bielema for the job um, as he transitions over to, you know, full-time athletic director um, as his duties. 
it was a bit surprising, I think, at the time and a little bit of an unknown of, all right, we're bringing this guy in as the defensive coordinator and we're going to hand over the keys to him was a bit of an interesting one. Um, but I, I certainly think Alvarez was, was hands-on with it. Um, I mean, I went um, – I was in grad school during the Bielema years and I'd take walks down around Picnic Point around Lake Mendota and multiple times I ran into a – a Barry and Brett chat as they were walking down together um, down that, that that same lakeshore path. So I think uh, Alvarez was imparting a lot of wisdom on him at the time. Um, but it was a pretty smooth transition. I mean, that first year was a one-loss season under Bielema. Um, that was a that was a really good team with a really really good defense. Um, and you know, from there, a um, couple you know. Little bit of a rough patch. I mean, rough patch being nine and four and seven and six those next two years. I mean, that's that's really not nothing, anything to complain about. Uh, but then really hit their stride from there um, under him. So um, I actually had I used to make the argument that it, you know, and maybe Barry's tutelage had something to do with this. Um, but I almost thought Bielema was uh, more consistent and better at Barry Ball than Barry was at times. And we talked about kind of the recruiting class misses for a few years after the first Rose Bowl um, with Alvarez. I thought Bielema recruited to the system and the program um, and recruited Fitz um, really, really well um, that way um, and understood um, kind of what the secret sauce was and was able to keep that going and even build on it to some degree um, with the same style of play, the physicality, um, the run game, um, and then recruiting to that. Um, he, he did that really consistently to his credit. You know, I, I, I heard this, you know, it's interesting because there was a lot of, um, of course, in hindsight, you know, with everything that's happened since then, criticism of Bielema, but his, his recruiting classes um, from 06 to 2012, they averaged 44th in the nation and he dropped from number 32, I want to say to 46 in his first to second year and basically was in the mid, you know, low to mid forties from there on out. But that's kind of maybe a good thing because what you're saying is that he's staying away a little bit from, you know, the going after the four and five star guys and really focusing on, as you're saying, like recruiting to the system, recruiting to the program. So the overall ranking might have been misrepresentative of the kind of, you know, overall class that he was bringing in in terms of how it, it, it fit Wisconsin football. Right. Yeah, that's that's fair. Um, I think last year. um Chris and his staff brought in like the 2020th or so ranked class. And that's by far the highest ranked one we've ever had in all these eras of, you know, star ratings and internet rankings for, for recruits. So that, that, that's kind of been the, the going thing is recruit well, but recruit to recruit to the program and recruit fits. Um, and I think that's one of the things I remember from the Bielema age was, or from the Bielema era was, you know, every single senior day game we went to is like, man, we're going to miss these guys. These were some really good leaders, really good program guys. Um, so there was certainly talent there, but it was also um, that culture um, that they fit. Um, and I think he did a really good job of that. And honestly, the keeping the program clean and then, you know, no off field things. He really didn't put up with any of that. We didn't have a lot of problems under Barry. Um you know, so so not insinuating that, but like there was nothing off the field going on um, after Bielema took over. I mean, I think one player had one of the running backs got into some type of altercation at the Mifflin Street block party, and then he was gone. Like there was going to be none of that type of thing. Um, so you know, discipline, um, keeping them organized, that type of thing. Like to his credit, I think that went really well. 
Well, and he, you know, as we talk about handing the car keys over, he inherits a program that had had 15 years of sustained winning. If not, you know, every year a Rose Bowl, you know, you guys were more times than not above 500 and oftentimes in that 9, 10, even 11 win category, right? So, you know, you think about Barry Alvarez's win percentage at 606, you know, um, Bielema, he goes uh, 68 and 24. So that's a 74 so basically three-fourths of the games that he coached, he won. Six straight bowl games. He made it to the Rose Bowl three times. Well, his team made it to the Rose Bowl three times. He made it twice. Um, they lost all They lost all three. Uh, and still, they finished in the top ten at, in the AP poll, you know, three times in those six seasons. That's pretty impressive. And yet that ending was messy. The ending was messy. Um, and probably differ from a fair amount of Badger fans in my perspective on it in that I don't really, you know, I don't hold any ill will towards Bielema. At, it was messy how he left and I didn't appreciate the way he left, but I also, uh, I also didn't necessarily really take it at face value. Um, you, and he was very successful. He was one of those guys too, where, I mean, he was like, it was one of those things where it's like, he seems to be a meathead, but he's our meathead and he's doing really well. <laughs> so, so you kind of rode with it. Um, and then the departure was, was messy, like you said, but I don't know how much I actually believe the things he said afterwards that really upset people. Um, you, you know, the, the idea that, well, I'm leaving because I think I have a better chance to win a national championship. Do you really <laughs> at Arkansas? I mean, you have to you have to beat out LSU, Alabama, and Auburn, and then throw in Mississippi State and sometimes Ole Miss, just to get out of the SEC West and get to the SEC title game. Like, you're going to do that at Arkansas? Like, I, that seems that seems kind of preposterous to me compared to all right, like find a way to not lose these one or two games a year um, at Wisconsin and and find a way to topple Ohio State in the Big Ten title game and. Um, and you'll be right there competing for a national title. So that rang a little bit hollow. And then, you know, it seems like he was grasping at other things of, well, we, we, we can't get, you know, enough pay raises for our assistance. Like, again, like, no, Wisconsin's not going to pay Dave Aranda $2.5 million to be the defensive coordinator when LSU comes and offers that. But they're also not, you know, vastly underpaying assistance and things like that. So, you know, who knows? I mean total conjecture on my part, but maybe, maybe the new Mrs. Bielema wanted to get him out of Madison. Or maybe, you know, it, well, he was certainly made more money himself going down to Arkansas. The other thing is like, you're still in Barry's shadow, you know, like, you know, and Barry built the program and he was still the athletic director and everything went through him. You know, he was sort of like, um, the godfather. It still kind of is, and, and and we're waiting for his next step because a retirement and you know four months in Florida might be the case. But what he's doing the other eight months, he's not going to sit around and do nothing. But I I don't know. I I just I think it's a little bit unfortunate. But he did have those you know, Bielema's teams did not perform the same way at the end of the year, particularly in the bowl games, as as Paul Chris teams have or as Barry Alvarez's teams did. And so, you know, maybe that was part of the, there was some contention there. There, I, I, I don't know the whole story, but he leaves, he's out in 2012. Alvarez comes in, coaches the Rose Bowl. They leave, they bring in Gary Anderson for basically two years and he does fine. Like nine and four, 10 and three, like can't complain about that. But then he leaves for, um, for Oregon, right? No, Oregon state, Oregon state. Yeah. So, um, 
then you guys bring back Paul Christ after Barry Alvarez had pretty much set him up. You know, he was an assistant on the Wisconsin staff and he set him up for that job in, at, at Pitt. Um, and, and, and Christ coaches there for a few years and then Alvarez brings him back. So now we're talking 2015. The Anderson years, not unsuccessful, you know, 19 and seven, um, 18 or 20 and seven, if you count Barry Alvarez's, uh, win in the Outback Bowl in 2015 for the 2014 season. But, you know, Paul Chris now has been there. This is year number seven, I believe, right? Six bowl wins. Yes. So um, last five to six years of Badgers football, what do you think about them? Yeah. um, So I will preface all of these remarks with the fact that I am definitely a big Paul Chris fan. Um, I thought um, if there is something I do like – dislike about Bielema's departure it was the timing of it because if he had done it a, a year earlier or maybe uh, a year later um, we could have gotten Chris right away instead of Anderson um, like you said um, Barry had just um, helped Chris get the job at Pitt to get him some head coaching experience and after one year didn't want to go like steal him away um, he felt bad about doing that um, so that left us with the, the Gary Anderson experiment for two years which honestly was was a miss one of Barry's rare misses um, that just was not a good fit. Um, and like you said, they, they won enough games, um, but things were not trending in the right direction. Um, as much as they wanted to talk about Gary Anderson, understanding what Wisconsin football was all about and how he could just tweak a few things, um, he he really didn't get it. He didn't understand the recruiting um, Wisconsin was not going to admit six JUCO transfers every year. Um, they'll maybe do one every three years. <laughs> um, like he was recruiting kids that were never going to get into Wisconsin. Um, he had a different philosophy on the offensive line of going smaller and more agile, um, supposedly, and the, the offensive line depth really took a hit. Um, and things were starting to go in the wrong direction there. But um, I, I'm on record of within – 30 seconds of finding out Anderson was leaving. I had a Facebook post that said, Hey, Paul, Chris, it's the 608 calling <laughs> and uh, Barry should back up whatever he needs to pay him. Um, I think Chris was just the perfect fit um, of understanding, uh, understanding the program, having been successful there in the past as an offensive coordinator, um, having been a player there um, and just familiar with understanding what works Um and a really good fit for the program. And it's been really solid um, since then. I mean, um, that first year they had very limited offense and it was a struggle to, to move the ball at all and still pulled out a 10 and three season um, with the win in the holiday bowl. Um, And then, you know, from there, I mean, after that, you've got two New Year's Six Bowl wins in a row with the Cotton Bowl, um, the Orange Bowl, um, winning those, um, and then getting to the getting to the Rose last year, um, and one they probably should have won, uh, but didn't pull out. But um, you know, it's ten wins, eleven wins, thirteen wins. Um, almost made the playoff that year. Um, just fell short in that Big Ten championship game. Um, and then another ten years, ten wins in in twenty nineteen. Um, it's 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 been in a good place and the recruiting I think um it seems to be elevated. The last two classes have been probably the best we've had in quite some time from a ratings perspective. And I think he's managed to do that while staying true to the program and, and people who are gonna be admitted, um and people who are gonna fit the culture overall. So um I've been I've been really happy with him to this point. Well, you did neglect to mention the the Pinstripe Bowl in eighteen and the Duke's Mayo Bowl last year. So Yes. <laughs> 18, 18 was a strange year. That team had some issues down the stretch. 
Um, <laughs> um, I won't get into all the um, scuttlebutt that has lived on the internet sense of what went down late in that season um, as things started to spiral a bit. But uh, but your point, you know, earlier was Gary Anderson's not a fit, and he goes nine and four and ten and three. Bunch of scuttlebutt down the end of the stretch in eighteen, and you guys go eight and five. You know, Barry has some some off some you know off years between ninety three and ninety eight, and yet you know three of those four years you win um, seven or eight games. And so I think you know as we as we as, you know we're, we're going to pivot to the Gophers here shortly. When when you go on to the sportsreference dot com and you look at year to year, one hundred and thirty years by the way of Wisconsin football. Um, you, you know, you go from 1962 until 1993 and that column that says AP post, like there, there's nothing it's blank. And then, you know, you go from 93 until today and it's six, six, four, 23, 17, 15, seven, 24, 16, 17, 10, 22, 13, 21, nine, seven, 11. Um, that is the thing I think as a Gophers, as a Minnesota sports fan, I respect number one and I am tremendously envious of number two. Like you guys have now had three decades, you know, with your own ups and downs of sustained success. And I think you owe a lot of that to Barry Alvarez and then picking the right successors. Bielema was a good coach. And I think Paul Christ has the program in, in the right direction. Um, and it's been, it's been, you know, I think it's also a blueprint for, other programs like Minnesota that hasn't or hadn't had a lot of success long term, like you can recruit in state. You can you you know if you got the right guy and and you, he brings in the right assistant coaches and you get a little bit of money behind the boosters and you know like Wisconsin football, Wisconsin sports in general is a thing now, and I think it's one that we're largely envious of, even if we hate you guys. <laughs> yeah, it's fair. I think under under Chris, it feels like. Um... Late in the Bielema era, it felt like, okay, now we're kind of a consistently top 15 program that's going to be in the in the conversation each and every year. Uh, and I think Chris has really solidified that. Um, you know, last year was kind of a mess with COVID and who knows, and, and we did have that eight and five year in there. But other than that, you know, 10, 11, 13, and 10 wins in four years in a five-year stretch, um, that's definitely um, definitely appreciated and try not to take it for granted either. Um, it's kind of, you know, have years year on year like that um and it's it's very enjoyable but you also try to realize like it's you know living through the golden age of something um like that that may not always be this way so yeah just remember that in 476 the vandals sacked rome so <laughs> with that you know when we come back from break tyler we're gonna move um our attention to the program across the border and that's the, the minnesota gophers and you know if our audience is wondering how are you going to fill up you know roughly half of the podcast with with coaches and, and that program there actually have been i would argue from you know the 1990s until today three if not four good minnesota gophers football coaches All right, we're back from break, and and now we're gonna pivot and and um, talk a little bit about the Minnesota Gophers. And as I as I said before, we went on break, Tyler. You know, like from you look at the at the sports reference pages and like the year by year records of these teams, and you know the big thing is that we we had a lot in common from the '60s, '70s, and '80s, meaning lots of losses, very few bowl games, and some pretty bad coaches. Right. And then you get into the 1990s and you guys, you know, with Alvarez and then Bielema 
and eventually Chris. I mean, you guys have had 30 years now of pretty sustained success. The Gophers, I would say, if you look at the 30-year block from 62 to 97 or 30-ish year block, I mean, tremendously bad football. But if you look at the block from 97 until 2021, so roughly, what, 25 years, um, you're talking about a program that's been up and down, but we've had some pretty high high moments. So what's what stood out to you the most in the last 25 years? You know, I think um, number one was just, you know, going back to the, the age-old question of was it the right move to get rid of Glenn Mason? Um, I think that was interesting to watch um, from slightly afar. Um, seeing him, you know, consistently get into bowl games. Like you said, Minnesota had been pretty bad for a while at the same time Wisconsin was. So, you know, people questioned like the rivalry and stuff for a while there when Wisconsin had won so many in a row. But I'm like, well, yeah, but it's always been, it's always been there. I mean, you go back to like 89, 90 and it's like, all right, who's going to be two and nine and who's going to be three and eight, but it still meant a lot um, with the ax on the line and that type of thing. Um, so, you know, seeing Mason turn them into um, a team that could go win at Penn State um, could pull off some big wins and could some, make some bowl games. Um, that stood out as well as the decision to move on from him at that point and try to go a level higher um, with somebody else. Uh, and then I think um, you know, Jerry Kill was a great hire. Um, and I think seeing um, a lot of respect for him, and I think I, I had a sense of that even before Minnesota hired him when he was at Northern Illinois. Um, you know, people in Wisconsin on the staff um, and the announcers for Wisconsin would always um, you know, show a high level of respect for, for him as a football coach. Um, so it was interesting to see that. I thought they were really turning a corner and they were becoming a much more physical kind of upper Midwest team, like we talked about as sort of the blueprint. Um, that was happening under Kiel, so it was unfortunate to see you know, him have to step down for health reasons. Um, and now um, seeing where it goes with PJ um, is, is pretty interesting. Yeah, so let's let's start then. That's a that's a good recap kind of, of I think, probably, you know, the, who are the three good coaches since 1997. And, you know, the, the program makes the hire of Mason in, in 97, and he stabilizes us. Um, maybe not to the degree that Alvarez did in Wisconsin, but he, t- he took over for Jim Wacker, who had never won more than four games in five seasons at the helm. Ten years in Minnesota, he finishes 64 and 57, seven bowl appearances, you know, maybe a lot of Music City Bowls. That's fine. Three and four in those bowl games from 02 to 05. So I'm talking like my uh, end of my undergraduate, you know, into my my, my graduate like career that was our education the gophers were kind of musty football we won 32 games in four seasons which is the most of any gophers coach in our history we finished in the top 20 twice eight and four 99 10 and three and 03 i don't know if you remember um but in 03 we beat oregon 31 to 30 in the sun bowl that was probably the best win of the program and we had that three-headed running back um of marion barber lawrence mahoney and thomas to that team could move the ball up and down the field, and that was a heck of a bowl game. Um, and you know he has two. You know, he, you know there were, there's going to be up and if, if you're trying to build a program or a program that isn't, you know, the Notre Dame of the '60s, '70s, '80s, and you can even throw in the '90s. So, you know, or a or a USC or what's become of Alabama or a Miami. Like you're going to have some ups and downs. And so in '04 and '05, he has seven win seasons, and then in 2006, he goes six and seven. And we go to tech or we play Texas Tech in the Insight Bowl. We're ahead 31 to 7 in the third quarter and we lose 41 to 41. After that game, Mason receives a phone call 
granted, at this point, he's living 10 miles from the campus, right? So Joel Maturi, our wonderful AD at that moment, says, after he makes the, he calls up Glenn and says, look, guy, you're fired. He, he proceeds to tell the press that we're probably not here if we don't lose that way. So essentially, Joel Maturi is saying, because of the way you lost one bowl game, I'm going to get rid of you after everything that you've done since the Jim Wacker era. And he proceeds to bring in Tim Brewster, a tight ends coach in the NFL. <laughs> are you hungry or are you starving? <laughs> you know, and I just, you know, you say like, what did that look like from afar? Glenn Mason couldn't believe it. He's like, what do I got to do in this program? Like Minnesota has meant nothing from 97 until 2006. I win 64 games, take you guys to seven bowl games. We win 10 just a couple of years before. And yeah, you know, they had had a couple of mediocre years, but so did the Badgers in the mid nineties between 93 and 98. But you, you, but the, the difference is you stuck with your guy and our day. I don't know if Maturi at the time was under pressure or he didn't like him, but that was a, and it, it, I don't know what was worse. The fact that he fired Glenn Mason or the fact that he brings in a guy like Tim Brewster. Yeah, that's uh Brewster is kind of going back to the Alvarez discussion about like a, a healthy, productive ego. Um, Brewster would be the opposite of <laughs> self-ego um, that um, didn't really carry a whole lot of weight. So that was an interesting one. But it, you're right, and it's actually – it seems like Mason was a bit of a victim of, you know, of falling victim to spectacular losses throughout his tenure. So to finish off with a bowl game like that where they were up, you know, four scores in the second half and lost. But um, the other kind of the key losses in there too, like Oh three, you talked about as being that, that best season. And that's the one where they were six and Oh, and then Michigan came to town and you go to the fourth quarter up 28 to seven. Um, <laughs> there's your breakthrough. Uh, if you win that game, um, who knows what happens the rest of the season there. Um, you might be uh, in line to contend for the big 10 title and then to, to lose that one spectacularly. In 05 was when they lost the game to the Badgers on the dropped blocked punt with 40 seconds to go um, when they had that game in the bag. So it's almost like those just things, those things kind of piled up maybe. And um, he was a victim of having a couple too many spectacular losses like that. But you know, this, this, this state, because we are so scorned at this point and like, you know, outside of the 87 and 91 twins, like we have no championship pedigree and I know so many of our fans want that, but we forget context so often. And I think that the media puts a lot of pressure, the media jackals, you know, they go after, you know, the AD, they go after the ownership, the GMs. And, you know, so Denny Green gets to what, seven playoffs in eight years and Flip Saunders gets to like eight playoffs in nine years. And, you know, Ron Gardenhire gets to the playoffs this number of times in this number of years. And Glenn Mason, kind of the same deal. And yeah, you know what? A lot of spectacular defeats, you know, in games that we probably should have won or we get to a certain level and then we completely self-destruct. And I understand that. And I understand the um, the fan resentment of like, we're finally kind of good or we're good. And then we get to close and we, we always fail. And I think that has a lot to do with why Glenn Mason, because you're right. Those were important games that we lost. But the overall picture compared to Wacker before him or Brewster after him, Mason was a saint, you know, for this mm -hmm. program. And, you know, and so, like, it, I think he deserved at least another year, if not two, to, like, to see if he could get through those. And it's not like we were awful. I mean, seven-win seasons in 04 and 05, a six-win season in 06, like, 
give him another year or two and maybe we drop off a little bit more. Okay, that's that that's reason. And in one spectacular loss at the end of a good run shouldn't do it for you. I just it seems very overreactionary. It almost seems like it's hard to believe it happened in like 2006 when it seems like a very like 2020 type of type of thing. I mean like today there's people there are people vocally complaining about Paul Chris because they haven't made it to the playoffs yet. It's like, well, <laughs> Yeah, but who are you going to hire that's going to take you to the playoffs? Well, it's the ever uh, it's the ever damning idea of expectations, right? Like you know, and and like you can't get it. I'm of the mindset, like I, I do try to keep an analogous perspective on like where we are compared to where we've been in terms of like blocks under a coach, not just. And that's hard to do in this media. Like it, it's hard to remember what we talked about last week whether you're listening to a podcast or you're on KFAN or you're on the, one of those national news shows, right? Like we have a hard time kind of keeping centered in this year alone, let alone in the context of like, how is this coach or this team in the last, you know, half a decade performing against how we have historically, that just doesn't happen anymore. Um, and, you know, it's, I think the Minnesota program is a little bit like a Greek tragedy. So you have Glenn Mason who kind of rises out of the ashes and be, you know, I'm not, calling him Phoenix, but he makes something of us. And and then we, you know, go into the, the dry Tim Brewster years and we do make that, that hire of Jerry kill from Northern Illinois. And so Jerry kill takes over in 2011, his first year, he goes three and nine, but he brought a really experienced staff from, from him at Northern Illinois, including Tracy Clays, the defensive coordinator, multiple assistant coaches that had coached with him for 20 years or more. And and we get, you know, back-to-back eight-win campaigns in 13 and 14. He was named the Big Ten Coach of the Year in 2014. And so, like, you know, after we, we hire Mason and he rises the program and then Maturi fires him and Brewster runs us back into the ground. And then we get this guy with his staff and all this experience and, like, continuity. And then 2015 hits and his seizures start to happen, you know, game in and game out. And Clay's has to take over midseason and he needs to take a break. And, you know, you were talking a little bit about like the Jerry Kill year. So as a Wisconsin fan looking westward, um, what what did the, you know what Jerry Kill was able to do post Tim Brewster and then like the ending with with having to step aside because of his health. Yeah, it was really unfortunate to see. I mean again, um set the rivalry aside and I think, you know, Jerry Kill was easy to respect um, as a football coach and, and a person from everything that you heard about him. Um, and I did, I thought, you know, I thought he would be the guy that could make you know, Minnesota a pretty solid contender. Um, you know, maybe not, you know, winning the Big Ten West every year, but, you know, you started to see like, eh, we might have, we might have a few axe games with quite a bit on the line um, going forward there. And, you know, that, that actually sort of came true towards the end there um, in his tenure. Um, and with Clay's, but, you know, it felt like they were trying to recruit in state. It felt like they were, um, you know, understanding, getting back to, you know, forget all the spread stuff from the Jim Wacker years. Um, forget, you know, some of the, some of the stuff Brewster is putting in with some more spread elements and things like that. And, and really getting back to almost like Wisconsin type football of, you know, lining it up, running the ball, um, being physical. Um, their defense was a lot more physical under kill. Um, they'd been under Brewster for sure. Um, and you know, those are some tough games there starting in that era. Um, I know 
2013, I was at the game up here at the bank. The Badgers won 20 to seven, but that was a that was a rock fight of a game, and it was that's probably the coldest game I've ever been to as well. <laughs> um, but that was you know that was a battle, and then you know a couple of years there, including the um, the Clay's year in 16. You know the Gophers had leads on the Badgers and Madison at the half, um, and uh, Badgers came back and finished those off, but you know those were those are some tough games, and it, it wasn't a walkover anymore. That that stood out to me for sure. Um, you know, we were in for a battle when we played the Gophers uh, once Kill arrived. Yeah, and and you know, sadly, he did have to step aside in 2015, and so his defensive assistant, you know, Tracy Clay's, does take over in mid 2015. We win the Quick Lane Bowl that year, and then he comes back for a full season in 16. And we win that year. We ended up after a lot of controversy winning the Holiday Bowl against Washington State, and we go nine and four. Um, he had been told um, by the AD about halfway through that Big Ten season that he would be back the following year. But then ten players were suspended, you know, by the university for allegations of sexual assault, and then the players decide that they're going to boycott the Holiday Bowl. And then Clay's says that he supports them in a tweet. And then the U fires him after they win the holiday bowl. Yes. And like, what a, like, just like thinking about, like, I think I thought Tracy Clay's was a, was a good, I mean, I mean, he was clearly kind of carrying on what Jerry kill and that program had, had built, but you know, now you've got like a, a firing of Mason that probably did not need to happen. The health condition of kill, that prevented him from continuing what he had built. And then Tracy Clay's at the end of his first full season gets caught up in, you know, this controversy about his players and, you know, the university and, and it just, like I said, Greek tragedy. Well, yeah, I was just gonna say, I mean, it was just one of those things where it became like, it was an impossible situation for, for someone who has the interim tag, whether or not they tell him he's coming back or not. Um, you've, you got the interim tag, you get the off-field stuff that's happening, and that that all blows up. Um, that pretty much is the writing on the wall. Um, and then you factor in um, the tough ending to the Michigan game at home um, here, where the clock management was terrible, and they kind of turned victory into defeat on that one. Um, that was kind of a tough loss for them. Um, yeah, it just kind of all started to add up, where it's like, yeah, this just isn't. And then I think you factor in Clay is not being the most, you know, dynamic face of a program type guy. Um, and it's kind of just unfortunate how it all came together that it just wasn't going to work. And that is the one thing about Alvarez, you know, that I will say that like what that healthy ego and that, but the confidence that he brings to a microphone. And I'm not saying that he, every time that he speaks, I agree with him, but every time that I hear him speak, I hear conviction. And that's somebody that I can follow. Like, in you know, yeah. I wonder if PJ Fleck could sell ice to an ex- Eskimo. <laughs> do you, what do you think about um, what he's done? His first, uh, let's see, four seasons and change as the Gophers head coach. Uh, you know, he's done a really good job, and I've talked to some folks who. Um, I know a few people who have family in the program. So I know a couple of parents of players who I think one was a walk on, uh, but another one was on the team um, a few years ago, um, early in the Fleck era and definitely get the sense the guy can coach football. Um, And I think he has a staff that can coach football. Um, You know, they know what they're doing. So it's not, it's not all this just 
this big show that it sometimes appears from the outside. So I'll grant them that, that, you know, I think they really do uh, know the game and they can coach. And and that's sort of what, what I had heard anecdotally was like, we're learning a lot under this staff compared to what we did in in the Clay's years um, is what I heard. Um, But there's also that flip side of it. It's also kind of annoying to have to walk down the hall in the facility. And every time somebody asks you how you're doing, you have to say elite. (laughs) It's, um, I wonder a little bit about the staying power of that if they don't break through relatively shortly. Yeah, I do too. I, I like I was talking with my cousin about like what the hell is row the boat? Like Yeah. <laughs> like the whole like hallway leading into the stadium has all these canoe paddles. And it's like I get it, a canoe is a boat, but like row like the canoe, I guess. Right. Well, like, <laughs> But it's a thing. I mean, it, it. It. I mean, his point was that like PJ Flack, it's his thing. It's his. It's his aura. It's his. It's his. It's his personality. And like he's gonna, you know, he, he's a he's a smooth talker. He's a snake oil salesman, as the local radio likes to call him. But like he, you put him down into a you know a living room of a three star recruit from Detroit Lakes who's considering you know uh, North Dakota State. Uh, Iowa and Minnesota and, you know, PJ Fleck and his team is always going to have a chance. So I think like he has the ability to recruit. I do wonder, like I think back to like, so what is it going to take for us to break through? So we had, you know, a couple of experienced coaches who had um, unfortunate endings to their tenures. I think back to Alvarez and the pedigree, you know, from um, Delaney to Hayden Fry to, to Lou Holtz. And I, then I, then I look at PJ Fleck and, you know, he did play college football and a little bit in the NFL, but he's kind of been his own guy at a very young age. You know, he goes 52 and 30 at four seasons at Western Michigan, but he was the head coach. So like, what is he drawing from that in, you know, a couple of years, maybe where we're not meeting expectations, you know, say five and eight or six and seven or what have you, you know, and last year was, I think was one of them where we ended up three and four with a defense that um, couldn't stop a you know, a, a single team from marching up and down the field on us all year. And, you know, that you, you made the point earlier about staying power, his brand of football. It's not the upper Midwestern. I think he's a good recruiter, but it's a, it's a, it's a, fin, it, it's kind of a blend. Like you think about all the guys that have come out of this program in the last few years, like the big names are at wide receiver and throwing the ball down the field, Tyler Johnson, Rashad Bateman, Right now we have Ottman Bell and this kid from Texas A&M who transferred um, the right kid. And, you know, and then you've got some, you know, guys in the backfield, Rodney Smith. And um, now, you know, I know Mo uh, Ibrahim is out for the season, but this is not six guys that have eaten corn their whole lives on the offensive line, you know, with a, a gay managing quarterback, quarterback and, and uh, you know, you hand it off 45 times a game and you, you win 10 games a year. This That's not PJ Fleck football. Right. Yeah. It's, it is interesting. And it's such a contrast. If you look at, you know, compared to a Paul Christ where, um, you know, PJ admits he he's publicly said he's not for everybody <laughs> and can rub some people the wrong way. But um, it is going to be interesting to see kind of the recruiting battles, I think between the two going forward, because you know, on one side, you know, Fleck is, you know, all these different, you know, acronyms and slogans and everything else that he's, that he's doing. And, and like you said, sort of the snake oil thing. And then you've got Paul Christ, who is the, you know, 
he comes across on television and interviews as the most boring person on the planet. Um, but he's got a total like coach dad persona where like their recruiting wins have been, you get the kids on campus for their official visit and they go have dinner with the Christs and they're like, come back talking about what a great family atmosphere it is. Um, and how much they, how much they were able to connect, um, with Chris and that type of thing. And it's, you know, everything is just the complete opposite, which is really fascinating right now. I mean, you look at the schedule poster when it comes out every year, Wisconsin's schedule poster will be, you know, five senior players on it, um, highlighted along with the games. And then the gopher schedule comes out and it's like Godzilla sized PJ Fleck coming out of TCF bank stadium. <laughs> and, <laughs> and there's like one little picture of a player down in the corner. Um, so it's going to be fascinating to see them recruit, you know, essentially different personalities and when it comes to players and how that breaks down in, in talent will be interesting to see in the coming years. But, um, yeah, I think, you know, it's really interesting to me because I think if, if I was a Gopher fan, I think I'd have lingering questions about whether or not 2019 was the best chance at a breakthrough in retrospect. Um, and I say that recognizing, like, Best season in a long time, fantastic season. You you knock off Penn State at home, and everybody rushes the field, and super excitement about that. Um, and then you go, you know, you beat a good Auburn team at the in the bowl game. Um, tons to be excited about, but lost in that too. As you look back, and it was one of those years where things lined up well. You're in the third year, so your systems ingrained. Um, you've got some of his first recruiting classes are starting to mature. The schedule breaks well, um, that you had a nice run to, you know, to get to that point in the season with, with no losses or one loss. Um, but then you had two games against your two rivals in Iowa and Wisconsin. And if you win one of them, you're going to Indianapolis and you break through and get to the Big Ten title game and you take your shot with Ohio State. And if you come up short, you still might get the Rose Bowl like Wisconsin did, um, that type of thing. So, um, Interested to see kind of this year next um, where they go um, and if that turns out to be like lost in all the excitement is was that really the golden opportunity to break through by winning one of those two games at the end? Yeah, we talked earlier about like Wisconsin's ability to break through and maybe win a national championship in 93 was derailed by that Gophers team in late October. And I, I do. I also wonder that like those that Iowa lost against Iowa and that lost against Wisconsin. Um, puts us back, and we ended up finishing 10th in the country that year. We, As you said, we did beat Auburn in the Outback Bowl. Good game. Um, but, you know, it, what we can't forget, like, and I know it's easy for us to say, despite the breakthrough, like you were saying back in 93, it just felt so good to be in the Rose Bowl, to win the Rose Bowl, you know, to finish 10-1-1. You know, we're a top-10 team in the country. Um, and, you know, that was the best finish to Minnesota football since 1962. He won Big Ten Coach of the Year. And it's probably also fair to say, what if? I, and I understand that. And then, you know, last year, COVID happens. So that kind of like messes. I mean, we ended up like you guys were four and three. I think we were three and four. And so it's really hard to get a read on anything at this point. I, I, I'll, I'll say um, in the opening games of 2021, I feel a little bit more optimistic about the Gophers' chances, even with um, Ibrahim out for the season with an Achilles injury, you know, what I saw against that Ohio state team, like that offensive line, like they can block. They have a lot of veteran leadership, especially with the amount of talent that the Ohio state defensive line has like our, the, their ability to protect Morgan 
And he can make, he's probably got the best, you know, he throws as good a slant as anybody I know. Um, and he's a veteran, you know, he's, he's a senior and we do still have some talent outside and, and in the backfield. Um, so I'm, I'm I'm relatively optimistic about what might happen yet this year, especially, you know, you made the point in 2019 about the schedule breaking our year. But, you know, you look at our schedule now, Miami, Ohio, Colorado, Bowling Green, Purdue, Nebraska, Maryland, Northwestern, Illinois, Iowa, Indiana, and Wisconsin, which hopefully we'll be watching that Wisconsin game together, if not tailgating Friday at your house in the blizzard. Um, but, like, this is a this is a pretty soft schedule. And we have an opportunity, I think, this year to contend for the, I think, for the West title. Like, I'm I'm not throwing, I, I think Ibrahim was a really big part of our offense. I'm still very concerned about our defense and what that might mean, though. But the schedule leads me to believe that, like, we've got a chance. We're not playing any of the major contenders in the conference outside of Wisconsin. Yeah, I would agree with that assessment. I think, um you know, the, I think the, having watched the opener with Ohio State, I would say the floor has risen for me and where Minnesota will be this year. Um, I, I agree. I think the defense is going to go a long way in deciding how good they can be this year. Um, you know, you're going to be in a lot of games because of the, the established, um, the quality and veteran lines, um, especially on the offensive side. I, I totally agree. I think the offense is going to be able to do a fair amount, um, just given the ability of the offensive line. Um, I think they should be um, pretty solid there. Um, going back I think, to last year, I think the question certainly is the defense. Like, was the drop-off um, not unexpected given the talent they lost, but the drop-off from 19 to 20 on defense, um, like, does that bounce back this year? Not not sure that there's a lot of playmakers on defense there yet, but you know, I, I would agree. I think there's enough there that they could – uh, put themselves in position where it comes down to those Iowa and Wisconsin games again um, for the West this year. So you think Wisconsin's going to be there after that loss against Penn State in the opener? I think so. Um, I would say maybe the opposite side happened to me for watching Wisconsin uh, in that opener, um, where I think not ready to make the call yet, but I think there's a possibility that if if some of the things I saw keep trending that way, I would say the ceilings may be a little bit lower than we had hoped um, for this Wisconsin team. But I don't think the floor um, has really dropped all that much either. But uh, there was, besides, like on one hand, like there were extremely unlikely, messy, sloppy things, you know, fumbling on first and goal from the one. Um, fumbling again on first and goal from the two and putting yourselves in a position where you don't score and, and like really like just throwing 17 points away. And it's like, we could have won this game by two scores. Um, but besides that, um, there were some concerning things with the offense um, of uh, Mertz did not look good beyond the turnovers. He was just staring down the first option on almost every single pass play. It was like he was throwing it there no matter what. Um, so there wasn't any progression there you'd hope to see. And I'm not sure this is a vintage Wisconsin offensive line either. I think there's a lot of talent there and recruiting-wise, but I don't think they've found the five yet that you're going to throw out there every week and they're just going to start steamrolling people. Um, you know, They had their moments, but the pass protection wasn't good. Um, and I'm not sure it, it gels yet. So um, I think the idea that, you know, this could be the year we really elevate a little bit and really go give Ohio State a breast shot in Indianapolis, I'm not so sure about that right now. I guess we'll see in the coming weeks when we play Notre Dame and Michigan. Um, but 
I still think they're they'll be in the mix. I, I would imagine it's Iowa, Wisconsin, Minnesota in the West again. Yeah, I, I neglected to mention Iowa. I think they are ranked tenth in the country right now. Um so they're they're gonna be there as well. I, I often neglect to mention Iowa, just like whether we're talking football or otherwise. Um but Wisconsin is eighteenth and you're right, you guys have Eastern Michigan um this weekend, so you should get some confidence back. But that that Notre Dame game, you know, top ten football team, and then up against Michigan, who's unranked, but you know, a Michigan football game is never going to be a walkover. So it'll be, I think, by week four, we're going to know with Wisconsin in particular what we're dealing with. Yeah, and I think that Michigan game will be key because they really need to win that crossover game so that they can control their destiny in the West. Um, having having blown the Penn State game, that should have been a win. Um, you really can't afford two losses, even though you could control your destiny, you know, start to lose control of your destiny. And even if you run the table in the West, um, you could run into a problem if either Iowa or Minnesota, um, doesn't drop another one somewhere along the way. So that, that was, that was kind of a tough one, but I think that Michigan one is going to be a, a really key game to set up the rest of the season. That talking about that crossover schedule, Penn state, Michigan, and then you're out of conference game against, um, Notre Dame. Like that's a, that's kind of a tough slate your first four weeks. Yeah, it is. I think that was sort of the, that was kind of the discouraging thing I would say from the first game. Like not only did we drop a tough one to Penn state, which is a tough game to start, um, but to look so sloppy and out of sorts on offense, given all the returning talent we've got and, you know, a couple of receivers coming back for the extra year. Um, I expected them to be a little bit more dynamic on offense. And, and now it's like, you got, Eastern Michigan, which probably isn't going to tell you much, honestly. And then you got a week off and then it's Notre Dame and Michigan. So it's a little bit like, yikes, <laughs> not, not the best schedule to come out um, looking a little ragged um, against. So um, we're going to know a lot more soon. Well, you know, to be fair, I think Wisconsin nation is pretty upset about the performance of Graham Mertz in week one, but he had some, he had some really nice weeks last fall. I know it wasn't an extended football season, but um, it, it it's tough after a long layoff, after a COVID year to really know what you're looking at in week one. So, you know, let's give it a couple of weeks and hopefully both of our programs are looking at uh three and one records by, by, by mid-October. Agreed. And I think it's sort of the, the flip side of uh, the Minnesota question. I think with Wisconsin, it's going to be the defense that's going to give them a shot in every one of these games. Um, and the offense just needs to be, the offense could be just a guy or just a collection of 11 guys, and it probably would be enough given how the defense should play most weeks. So a little bit of the opposite of the Gophers. but Well, if Iowa or another Big Ten West team doesn't have something to say about it, hopefully our, our game on November 27th, Tyler, will be you know, Wisconsin in Minnesota and, and you and I and some other friends um, celebrating the rivalry once again for the, yes, the Big Ten West title, hopefully. That more on the line always makes it more fun. All right. Well, we're solidly over an hour. Um, you want to take us out tonight? Will do. Um, thanks again for having me on. It was a pleasure. And you know, of all the topics we're going to cover, college football is certainly a favorite. And we're, we're into that best time of year right now. Um, approaching those October, fall Saturdays with the crisp weather and college football from 11 a.m. till midnight. Uh, doesn't get much better than that. So take care, everybody. Enjoy the football.